Uh, the results of the 2021 census were released this week. Uh, and one of the interesting stats was that Australia is now um, a majority nation of immigrants. Uh, by that, they mean 51.5% uh, of Australians were either born overseas or they have one parent born overseas. Another interesting fact is that India is now the third largest country of birth behind Australia and England. Uh, it's overtaken China and New Zealand in the last five years. The number of Nepalese immigrants has doubled uh, Australia-wide. Uh, over five and a half million uh, Australians speak a language other than English at home. Uh, most commonly, Mandarin, followed by Arabic. Now, all of that means that our religious landscape is changing as well, uh, as has been fairly widely uh, printed in the media this week. Less than half of the population identified as Christian, uh, dropping from 52% in 2016 to 44% in 2021. Now, that's only slightly higher than the 39% uh, of Australians who selected no religion. Uh, meanwhile, there's been a 55% increase in the number of Hindus, uh, as well as strong growth in Islam, uh, with the result that Islam makes up 3.2% of the population and uh, Hindus 2.7%. Now, what's all of that mean? Well, it means that every day you will meet people who sincerely believe a wide range of things about God, religion, spirituality. How, do you relate, how, should, you, how should you relate to them? Uh, what do you do about your differences? Well, one option is just to ignore them. Just pretend they don't exist. You believe what you want to believe. I believe what I want to believe. We're both right. The Uniting Church deliberately uses language in its creeds and uh, doctrinal statements that are so vague, almost anyone can agree with them. That's pretty much doing that, isn't it? It's saying, well, we're all the same. It doesn't really matter. But think about real people. Ignoring different opinions, it's just not acceptable. Jesus calls us to do more than that. He calls us to love our neighbour. To just ignore differences of opinion just minimises them and dismisses them as not important enough to interact with. We're not actually honouring people when we overlook our differences. Another strategy recognises that differences exist but that religion is a private matter and shouldn't appear in the public space. You can believe whatever you like, just keep it to yourself. Now, that was my parents' and grandparents' generation's view about religion. Uh, it was always said in polite conversation there were two topics that were never discussed, religion and politics. That's right. Just keep it to yourself. Now, interestingly, it's also the same strategy that the modern secular movement uh, is saying we should do about our differences, especially do with religion. Uh, the modern secular movement mistakenly defines a secular society as somewhere where there is no religion. Get religion out of the public sphere, they say. It has no place in government, schools, 
public policy. Uh, the secular movement says that even public officials, politicians and teachers, shouldn't let their religion influence how they do their job. But that's not actually what secular means. Secular actually means that no religion can be imposed on its citizens and no law should prohibit the free exercise of religion. You see, actually, a true secular society is one which is genuinely tolerant of religions and welcomes an open expression and interaction between religions. Wouldn't that be great if that's what we had? So back to the question, how should you as a Christian relate to those you know who follow other religions? Well, once again, uh, these chapters from Acts about Paul are uh, instructive for us. Paul didn't ignore the differences. He didn't restrict his religion or others' religion as, as something that was to be kept private. In fact, the differences were so obvious between Paul and the Jews that the Jews wanted him dead. He spoke the truth including the truth that his hearers were wrong. And he spoke to convince people to change. Like that lovely little interaction at the end of uh, the reading from Laurie, where King Agrippa says, do you think you can persuade me, Paul, in such a short time to become a Christian? And Paul answers in verse 29 of chapter 26, whether short time or long, I pray that you and everyone listening may become as I am except for these chains. Now that's the goal that we should have as we relate to those who follow other, other religions. Because it's not enough for them to just believe something sincerely if it's wrong, if it's deadly. Paul knows from experience. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. He doesn't want others to make the same mistake that he did. So let's set the scene, let's uh, catch up. Thank Laurie did a, a great job get, getting you up to, uh, up to speed. Uh, you might remember last week there were 40 uh, Jewish zealots who were so angry with Paul that they swore that they uh, were going to ambush and kill him and that they wouldn't eat until they'd succeeded. That's chapter 23. Now that's sincere belief, isn't it? But Paul escaped, he made it to Caesarea, he went through... Uh, his trial with the Roman governor Felix, but then he was stuck in prison for two years until Felix was succeeded by Festus. Uh, that's the end of chapter 24. Two years later, but the Jews hadn't forgotten Paul. Verse 3 of chapter 25, they urgently request Festus to transfer Paul to Jerusalem for the trial. The plan is still to ambush and kill him. I'm guessing those 40 men must be pretty hungry by now, Two years have gone by, maybe that's why it's an urgent request. Better hurry up, we're getting hungry. But Festus convenes his trial in Caesarea, verse 6, and once again, in this trial there are lots of accusations, but no proof. Verse 9, Festus wants to do the Jews a favour. He asks Paul if he'd be willing to go up to Jerusalem. Paul realises the danger, and in verse 11 he appeals to Caesar. Any Roman citizen had the right for his case to be heard in Rome by the emperor himself. And Paul is fairly sure with what's going on that he will get a better hearing there than he will in Jerusalem. God's already told him that he will make it to Rome and testify to Jesus there. 
Perhaps he'd hoped to travel there freely, uh, but now it seems he realises his only hope is to go there as a prisoner. But, verse 13, the story starts to get interesting. King Herod Agrippa uh, II comes to visit. Now, it's slightly confusing. There are a few Herods that appear through the Bible and uh, they're all different, just to make things confusing. Way back, uh, there was Herod the Great. He was the one who killed the babies in Bethlehem at Jesus' birth. Uh, Then uh, his son... Uh, Herod Agrippa I uh, executed the Apostle James in uh, Acts 12 Uh, and this Herod's great uncle, Herod Antipas was the one involved in Jesus' trial, Luke 23 so this this guy's Herod Agrippa II And, and he's come to introduce himself to the new Roman governor before long, verse 14, they're talking about Paul they're just talking business, shop and Festus says, oh, I, I can't work out what to do. And so verse 22, Agrippa offers to help. Uh, and so verse 23, Paul appears, he's now on the big stage. Uh, follow along, verse 23 of chapter 25. The next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Now if this was a movie, this is where the uh, dramatic music would start the uh, suspenseful music. Now all the important people are there, Jewish, Roman, military, civilian, and they're all going to hear what Paul has to say. Festus gives a brief introduction, verse 25. Specifically, Luke notes, Paul's done nothing deserving of death, but he's appealed to Caesar, which puts uh, Festus in a difficult position because he has to write something on the introductory letter. He has to write something in the charge column. Uh, He's keen for Agrippa's opinion. And so, with Agrippa's permission, Paul begins his next defence. Verse 2, where Laurie took up the reading for us, chapter 26. Uh, Now, this is your classic, he begins with your classic before and after story, uh, like the Jenny Craig weight loss ads. This is what I was like before. Now, this is what I'm like now. So, before, verses 4 and 5, I was a strict Pharisee. No one tried harder to keep the law. There was no one who believed more sincerely than me. I thought the better I kept the law, the better things would turn out for me at the resurrection and on judgment day. In fact, Paul goes on to say, verse 6, his hope hasn't changed. And now it's because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. My hope is the same hope that motivates my accusers, says Paul. But the difference comes in verse 8. Paul knows the resurrection has happened. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? You see, the Jews believed that God would raise the dead, that resurrection was future, that would only happen on the judgment day. But Paul says, I used to think that, but now I know that it's already happened because I've met Jesus. The resurrection's happened. Before, verse 9 to 11, 
I thought God wanted me to persecute Christians. I was convinced I was right to oppose the name of Jesus, even down to executing Christians, verse 10. But being sincere is not enough. I was sincerely wrong. Verse 12, he met Jesus. He tells the story again. We should be getting a bit familiar with it by now. It's actually the third time we've heard of his Damascus Road conversion experience. Luke has told it, chapter 9. Paul's given us a first-hand account in chapter 22, and now we get another one in chapter 26 about how Jesus appears to him in the flesh on the road to Damascus, proving that he really did rise from the dead, that he really is the Messiah, and that Paul's violence is not welcoming in the Messiah, it's actually persecuting the Messiah. But the bit I want to look at is from verse 16. Have a look at it with me. Uh, What all of this meant for Paul. Jesus says to him, I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. And then look at what his message will be, his message of testifying, verse 18. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It's interesting. (laughs) Paul's receiving this vision. Paul's gone blind, but his job is going to be to open the eyes of people. (laughs) Paul himself was spiritually blind. He was sincerely wrong. But his job will be to convince others that they also were blind and they need to open their eyes and then to trust or rely on Jesus and then receive forgiveness for their sins. Faith in Jesus, it's the key to it all. A bit further down, we see uh, in verse 22, we see how Paul's message will be focused on Jesus. Paul says in front of the court, I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Jesus brings it all to pass. By his death and resurrection, in obedience to his Father, he fulfills scripture And by that action, he declares life and light to all people. And he brings to them all those things listed in verse 18. Now that's really going to be the focus of the rest of our time this morning. If you're looking for a summary of what being a Christian is all about, it doesn't get much better than verse 18. So have a look at it again. I've come up with five Ps just to help us remember. Four of them come from verse 18 and one from verse 22. Uh, The Christian life is about perspective, it's about power, it's about pardon, it's about place and it's about proof. So firstly, the Christian has had his eyes opened. The Christian has a whole new perspective. Everything looks different. Uh, The Christian sees the world in a whole new way. Family, friends, possessions. The Christian sees himself differently. His money, his time, his worth, his purpose. 
The Christian's choices in life now have consequences. Uh, Eternity impacts the way we live now. Our eyes have been opened. We see Jesus differently. Not as someone who was weak, dead and buried, but someone who reigns, who's alive and active. Someone we can speak to, someone who demands our allegiance. Perspective. Secondly, power. A Christian has been turned from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Our allegiance has been transferred. We've changed our citizenship. We've stopped listening to Satan and we're now listening to God. We're done with darkness and secrecy and guilt and instead we're living in freedom and openness and purity. Thirdly, we've been pardoned, forgiven. Isn't that one of the wonderful things about being a Christian? Knowing that God knows everything about you. Your darkest secrets. But forgives you. Isn't that one of the most wonderful things about being a Christian? He's washed you clean. He doesn't hold your sin against you. There is no longer the barrier that separates you, a sinful human, from the perfect God. The relationship's restored. Knowing that you're forgiven, it gives you a genuine, tangible joy and confidence, doesn't it? That that joy and that confidence, I think, actively fights our, our natural feelings of guilt and anxiety and uncertainty before God. We're going to look at Hebrews next term and I love that verse in Hebrews that says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence uh, in our time of need. Approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's the joy, uh, the confidence that comes from being forgiven and pardoned. Perspective, power, pardon. Fourthly, the Christian receives a place. Verse 18, there's this interesting little phrase at the end of it. Uh, receiving a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Now that word for place, it's not geographical or physical. Uh, The word is the one uh, that's used for portion or share or inheritance. Uh, Just like the Jewish tribes received when they entered the promised land, they received something of their own. But that portion is now available to everyone, to Jew and Gentile. And that portion, it's secure, it's kept in heaven for us, and it's eternal. It's a place among the most privileged and select group ever. It's better than any concert ticket or elite club membership. Sanctified. It's got a moral aspect, but here it's about being set apart and removed from everything else, set apart as special. We're securely set apart from judgment. We're securely set apart to be joined to Jesus, our saviour, our brother, our king, for all eternity. As you go through life, you may be tempted to think that you miss out on things as a Christian. Experiences, possessions, influence, fun... But this place that you have with Jesus, it's the greatest privilege that anyone can have. 
You receive it by faith in Jesus. Before we move on to the fifth P, notice something else in verse 18. Look at the way Jesus words it. He says to Paul, you will open their eyes. Now, it doesn't really fit our theology, does it, there? We always say, well, it's not us who converts people. It's not us who convinces people. God's Spirit does it. Jesus has got bad theology here. What's going on? But here, Jesus says that Paul will open eyes. Paul will turn people from darkness to light. I don't have a real answer for it, other than Jesus is saying, I've got a job for you. Your message is going to be effective. You play a real role in this, a crucial role in turning people to God. Our task is not irrelevant, insignificant and unimportant. Now that's what the world thinks Christians are doing. That's what the world thinks about churches, that we're irrelevant, insignificant and unimportant. It's been media articles this week uh, in light of the, the, uh, the census figures. The church, Christianity, it's a relic, it's a dinosaur, it's slowly fading to obscurity and irrelevance and extinction. If you extrapolate the percentages, you know, the lifespan for Christianities by the end of the century will be dead. That's what they think. But that's not true, is it? Uh, This news that we have, the gospel, is a weapon that's powerful and cutting-edge and life-changing. It's dangerous, it's explosive. There is no more important thing the church is doing than making disciples. Well, each of those first four aspects are about what God gives to us, what God gives us. There's actually a fifth aspect, down in verse 20. And that's about how we respond to God's gifts. Paul says, verse 20, I preach that they should repent and turn to God, and look at this last part, prove their repentance by their deeds. God's forgiveness comes to those who repent. Uh, To those who stop travelling away from God, but then turn around and travel towards him, and then prove that with a changed life. God's forgiveness comes to those who trust Jesus as their Lord as well as their Saviour. It's a mistake to think that repenting is simply a matter of feeling sorry in your head but continuing in your actions in the same way. It's a mistake to think that you can just go to Mass at 5pm on a Saturday before your big night out and then you can go and do whatever you like knowing your sins will be forgiven. That's not repentance. That's not proving your repentance by your deeds. Think about this. Paul was on trial for being a Christian. And he's talking about proving repentance by deeds. Let me ask you a question. If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be evidence to convict you? Would there be enough proof that you had turned from darkness to light? Would there be evidence that your life was under the power of God rather than Satan? Would there be enough evidence or would the prosecution be forced to dismiss the case for lack of evidence? 
is your life proving the reality of your repentance? Paul's message, turn to God, trust Jesus, receive forgiveness, prove it in the way you live. Paul preached that from Jerusalem to the marketplace in Athens to the king's palace in Caesarea. Now that's the message Jesus wants us to be spreading as well through Ashfield and Burwood and Croydon and the places where we live and work to all sorts of people who believe all sorts of things or believe nothing. We're to do it because them being sincere in their beliefs, it's not enough. It's not going to count for anything on Judgment Day. Judgment is real. Their souls are precious to Jesus. And we love our colleagues and our friends and our family and our neighbours. Stop playing the Christian. Make it real. Prove your repentance by the way you live. That's truth and that's great news that we have to share. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for its challenge. Uh, Your word is a sword uh, that sometimes uh, trims and sometimes cuts deeply. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, for those of us who need challenging, your word might be cutting, convicting us. Make us a people who are genuine and truthful and uh, courageous in the message that we live and proclaim for the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen.